officers have the power over citizens of a life and death, a power shared only by the state. Only the state can put you to death or a policeman with a gun. But then it was the police who said, what are you going to do next? I killed down more people than any other officer on the Portland Police Bureau. It was my go-to move. I mean, at the end of the day, when when you, when you have a problem, you cannot solve it by yourself. You're going to call us and we'll be there for service and we'll do our best to, to help you solve that problem. It is January 1942, and those are some weird-ass-looking salmon swimming up the Columbia River. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. The police have to be society's mommy because society is so freaking stupid. And a group of Cayuse men and leaders got together and made the decision that it was time for to dispatch Dr. Wooden. When it all fails, call the cops. Simply going in and arresting people and then leaving is not good enough. Somebody has to step in, and it has to be the police. Um, I'm not sure that it was as much racially motivated as that we just had dead possums and we hated the burger barn. Just to let you know that as a police officer, that I love you and I care about you. The next time you're at Cannon Beach, Seaside, or Lincoln City, look west across the majestic Pacific Ocean. You can almost see Japan out there. Well, not really. But the exercise can be helpful while listening to today's podcast. Between Oregon and Japan, there's not much of a physical barrier, besides the largest body of water in the world. And even that wasn't enough for some scared Oregonians at the end of 1941. The Beaver State was all in for the war effort after the surprise Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. Perhaps even more all in than the rest of the nation. As the New York Times boldly declared in March of 1942, Oregon has topped the states in enlistments and in the purchase of defense bonds. Its labor has worked almost without interruption to build ships ahead of schedule in its rapidly developing yards to manufacture airplanes and artillery parts to produce unlimited quantities of lumber for military purposes and ingot aluminum for the war machine. While industry is fine and dandy, Many Oregonians felt that not enough action was being taken against the menace of the Japanese and the possibility of enemy attack. They wanted more policing. I ain't happy, I'm feeling glad I got sunshine. In a bag, I'm useless, but not for long. The future is coming on. I ain't happy. I'm feeling glad I got sunshine. The Oregon National Guard had been placed on active duty and was not able to assist coastal communities if the war turned south 
or east across the Pacific, as the case may be. Governor Charles Sprague had initiated the creation of a group called the Oregon State Guard, but progress was slow. Our old-timey citizens feared that Oregon was a prime location for Japanese raids, and some even went so far as fearing an actual invasion. There was another policing organization that drew the attention of Oregonians. In Britain, the creation of the local defense volunteers, or as they were also called, the Home Guard, was announced in May of 1940 by Secretary of State for War, Anthony Eden. I want to speak to you tonight about the form of warfare which the Germans have been employing so extensively against Holland and Belgium, namely the dropping of troops by parachute behind the main defensive lines. Since the war began, the government have received countless inquiries from all over the kingdom, from men of all ages who are, for one reason or another, not at present engaged in military service and who wish to do something for the defense of their country. Well, now is your opportunity. We want large numbers of such men in Great Britain who are British subjects between the ages, ages of 17 and 65, 17 and 65, to come forward now and offer their service in order to make assurance doubly sure. The name of the new force which is now to be raised, will be the local defense volunteer. Prime Minister Winston Churchill explained the impetus of this protective formation. Behind these soldiers of the regular army, uh, as a means of destruction for parachutists, airborne invaders, and any traitors that may be found in our midst, and I do not believe there are many, woe betide them, they will get short shrift. Behind the regular army, we have more than a million of the local defense volunteers, or as they are much better called, the Home Guard. These officers and men, a large proportion of whom have been through the last war, have the strongest desire to attack and come to close quarters with the enemy, wherever he may appear. Should the invader come to Britain, there will be no placid lying down of the people in submission before him, as we have seen, alas, in other countries. We shall defend every village, every town, and every city. The vast mass of London itself, fought street by street, could easily devour an entire hostile army, and we would rather see London laid in ruins and ashes than that it should be tamely and abjectly enslaved. I am bound to state these facts because it is necessary to inform our people of our intentions and thus to reassure them. The call to arms was effective. By July of 1940, over one and a half million men had signed up for Britain's Home Guard, or the Dad's Army, as they were often called. Back in the Beaver State, many felt that the policers of Oregon were simply unable to protect them. Oregonians were well informed about the war, especially coastal Oregonians. Historian G. Thomas Edwards wrote that out on the coast, they 
constantly chatted about the Japanese conquest in Asia and were especially tuned in to the invasions of the Philippines and the Aleutians. We spoke with Bill Lasher, author of Eve of a Hundred Midnights. Bill's book is centered around correspondence covering the Pacific theater. We asked him about the flow of news in the Pacific in World War II. Thanks for joining us today, Bill. And we wanted to ask you a couple of questions about the war in the Pacific. In G. Thomas Edwards' essay on the Tillamook guerrillas, he writes, coastal residents talked endlessly about the Japanese military success in Asia, especially in the Philippines in the Aleutians. So as a coastal Oregonian, how would I find out about what was going on in the war in the Pacific? Well, I think you'd find out uh, pretty much the way I an American anywhere else in the country would find out about you'd find out through magazines like Life Magazine, the Saturday Evening Post, Liberty Magazine. You'd find out about it um, perhaps from reporters like Edward R. Murrow or uh, Ernie Pyle. So these are national reporters and national names and national outlets. You might go to a movie and you might see a March of Time report, you know, a newsreel about the latest effect this week, you know, this drive on uh, the Philippines or the invasion of the Aleutians or uh, any number of the latest developments would have been dramatized or just provided with newsreel coverage. So so I think it's important to remember, remember that coastal Oregonians aren't getting some kind of special news coverage, particularly because you know, the authorities at the time are trying to tamp down this coverage. They're trying to make sure there aren't panics. They're trying to make sure that the coverage that's out there is accurate. They're also trying to make sure they don't reveal to Japanese intelligence you know, the impact of any attacks that do happen, you know, whether it's a shelling on a coastal, vill- a coastal town or if it's a, um, you know, a balloon bomb. They don't want to indicate the extent of damage that has occurred, uh, again, both for uh, foreign observers and uh, to stem panic. Rumors spread through Oregon as well. And while they didn't exactly spread panic, they do demonstrate the fear that Oregonians held for a Japanese invasion or raid. In January of 1942, a rumor had spread that 50 Japanese soldiers had been captured in the Columbia River. According to the erroneous scuttlebutt, the men had been costumed to look like salmon and had been snagged in a net that the military had hung in the brackish waters. Others said that there were Japanese paratroopers secreted away on Mary's Peak, the highest peak on the coast range. In Cedar Mills, excited wedding guests set off dynamite sticks in celebration of the ceremony. And, of course, rumors spread of a Japanese invasion. It flooded the area. Oregonians felt a genuine fear of Japanese attack, which did indeed happen many times. And they feared Japanese invasion, which did not. Many coastal families kept grub boxes with foodstuffs ready to go in case they had to flee Imperial Japanese soldiers charging through the seaside surf. But others decided that as the authorities were unable to police the coastline, a more proactive, homegrown response was necessary. For a short and interesting time, this void was filled by the Tillamook Gorillas. In March of 1942, Mr. Stuart Arnold, a World War I veteran usually clad in a brown suit, 
was appointed the rank of colonel and led the militia. Colonel Arnold had lost his sight in the previous World War and was always accompanied by his seeing-eye dog, Mac. He was an unusual commander for a group of armed men, but he was very effective in leading and recruiting. The Tillamook guerrillas numbered 1,500 men in a county with a population of only 13,000. Dubbed a guerrilla rifle club by the Headlight Herald newspaper, others called the militia Arnold's Raiders. The troop was composed of loggers and dairymen, fishermen and small business owners, a cross-section of Tillamook County, all motivated to keep the Japanese off the beaches. The men drilled twice a week with their sporting rifles and shotguns and were described as being good shots from their years of experience in hunting the coast range. Their motto was simple. Keep your guns cleaned and oiled and your powder dry. Colonel Arnold laid the public plan out. If the Japs try to land in the bays or inlets, Detarts, Tillamook, or Lesser Coves, they will find guerrillas on cliffs, sand spits, and in the bogs using their own ammunition and rifles. But the guerrillas' plans were much more elaborate than that. One raider told his family that all the bridges leading into Tillamook had been mined by the guerrillas to slow the dreaded Japanese invasion. One of Highway 101's tunnels was another target of the Tillamook men, and designs were implemented to drop it at a moment's notice. The group was a media sensation. A Portland editorial simply gushed at the news of the Tillamook guerrillas. The Oregonian commends the organizing of the Tillamook guerrillas while noting with interest that similar musterings of riflemen have elsewhere been held. It believes that these organizations are of such potential value, so indispensable to defense if need arises, that state and federal government should encourage and recognize them and give them such aid and counsel as may seem advisable. To militarize them in the conventional sense ought never to be considered, for such a course would but hamper the individualism and initiative which are their valuable and distinguishing attributes. Let them keep the Daniel Boone tradition as much as is possible, and should occasion arise, they may confidently be relied upon to give an excellent account of themselves. The Coos Bay Times was less complimentary, stating that There is something whimsically pathetic, like the classic view of the child holding back the ocean with his finger in the dike in the much-publicized picture of the Tillamook gorillas. The trend quickly spread through Oregon. Men and independents began to muster in the school gymnasium. At Cannon Beach, a group simply called the Gorillas patrolled the beach and stationed troops at Arch Cape Tunnel. A little further south was the 125 men of Company A, Lincoln County Guerrillas, and also the Suislaw Rifles. And even in southeast Portland, the Bushwhackers met weekly in the basement of Laurelwood Methodist Church. Armed and organized militias were organically distributed like a checkerboard pattern in the communities across Oregon. The stated purpose of the groups was typically along the lines of performing their duty as first responders in response to an invasion, protecting citizens, and assisting in case of fires and other protective circumstances. Governor Sprague 
wanted to absorb many of these independent companies into his own Oregon State Guard, which he hoped to model after Britain's Home Guard. Some followed suit. But other militia members preferred to operate without the constraints of state control. Colonel Arnold was concerned that a regular formation would require too big of a time suck on his men's schedule, as they often had day jobs with the logs and the cows and the fish and the like. Quickly, the federal authorities stepped in and said the men needed to be enrolled in state-supervised formations in order to be considered lawful belligerents under international protocols, which sounds way less cool than the Tillamook guerrillas, the Sayuslaw rifles, or the Southeast bushwhackers. Governor Sprague dangled military rifles and even a few machine guns to those guerrillas that would join his state guard, and offered that those that remained under Arnold's command could participate in non-military functions. The governor asked the unenticed men to cooperate with the forestry department in fighting forest fires, do community service, help organize any labor group to harvest crops, do salvage work, and give full aid to civil defense. The police state would go back to policing itself. Thank you very much. The nostalgia and romanticism of a bunch of loggers with guns hiding behind stumps ended almost as soon as it started. But that symbol was strong. As an Astoria newspaper editor wrote, The spirit behind the guerrilla bands is typical of the spirit of the whole American people, still willing to fight hard for their liberties, just as their ancestors did in 1776. So how real was this fear of our forefather Oregonians of a Japanese imperial army invasion of the Beaver State? In hindsight, most have concluded that Japan was not powerful enough, both economically and militarily, to fight a long war with the United States of America. But an invasion of the U.S. was at least entertained by the Japanese. In December of 1941, the Imperial Japanese Army instructed Navy Captain Kami Shigenori to consider the logistical infrastructure necessary to support an invasion of Hawaii and sustaining an occupational force on the island. And, of course, the Alaskan Aleutian Islands of Kiska and Atu were invaded by Japanese forces in June of 1942, which they occupied for about a year. We asked our author, Bill Lasher, about this fear of Japanese invasion. So with what was available in the press at the time, was the fear of an Oregon invasion justifiable? Was it real? I think it was real to some extent. There were you know, a number of Japanese submarines in operation off the coast. There are documented cases of those submarines shelling coastal facilities up and down the American coast. Uh, but... The fear of a full-scale invasion, uh, 
I wouldn't say it was as justified as perhaps the fear of a bombing raid on a strategically important city or a um, you know attack on an industrial facility that could have consequences for surrounding populations. I think that considering the commitment that the Japanese army had made in China and in conquering China and then in the Philippines and in Indonesia and elsewhere in the Pacific, the idea of an entire invasion force crossing the entire ocean, reaching the U.S. before some sort of engagement with the U.S. military was probably a little unlikely. But was that fear real? Was the paranoia real? I mean, of course the paranoia was real, and we see great examples of that. Uh, in California, after a uh, shot on the um, uh, on an oil facility off the coast of Santa Barbara, the next day there was a perceived, there was a reported incident of an airplane coming into LA airspace. Some artillery or anti-aircraft guns went off. This is the so-called Battle of Los Angeles. One anti-aircraft gun goes off. Every other anti-aircraft gun around town goes off. Suddenly people think that there's a massive attack happening in LA. If that were to happen in any other facility, you know, in Oregon, if, if you know, when Fort Stevens was attacked, if there was bigger population there, if people had witnessed that, they would there would be panicked. They would be scared. And, you know, other parts of the United States had been attacked unexpectedly. So worrying that you'd be next and knowing that you were the next, you know, position before the Japanese empire, you know, between you and the rest of the United States is the Oregon coast. Um, I think that that is a understandable panic and an understandable fear. Um, I just wonder uh, to what degree uh, the strategic fear was real. Imagine the fear of Oregonians when I-25 shelled Fort Stevens. It must have felt like all these paranoid preparations had been well laid out and very well planned. Bombs falling near Brookings as Chief Flying Warrant Officer Nobu Fujita became the only man to bomb the continental United States of America. And as Japanese balloon bombs gently soared over our state on their path westward, silently sailing until the altimeter on the balloon went pop. Reinforcing this fear was a growing paranoia. Blackouts and brownouts along the beaches, seeing their neighbors being hustled off to livestock yards and later internment camps, afraid that your loose lips might accidentally sink some of those ships, brand new and splashing into the Brown River on their way to the war. Oregonians felt vulnerable and wanted more protections. Remember, we created this police state. So when this protecting and serving infrastructure is not meeting our basic needs, what can we do? What sorts of changes can we make to that construct? Or can we even create alternatives that suit a community needs better? This is a theme that we're going to see again in a few of our upcoming Policing in Oregon episodes. If you will recall when Mayor Hales told us, the police are the public and the public are the police. Except when they're not,
Kick-Ass Oregon History Season 10 is a production of ORHistory.com. It is written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available by request. We hope that you agree that today's episode contains some kick-ass Oregon history. If you like what you hear, you should give us money to make more. Visit ORHistory.com to learn how you can give us money once or over and over again. Follow us on the internet, Twitter, at Oregon underscore history. Look for us on Facebook and Instagram, too, at Kick-Ass Oregon History. As always, visit us on the web at ORHistory.com or send an email directly to historian Doug Kank Crispin, OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kank Crispin. Airborne invaders and any traitors that may be found in our midst, woe betide them. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. History.com.